Money no geta. Are we still in the book of Ruth? Uh, please turn your Bibles with me to Ruth. Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from Ruth chapter 3, uh, verses 14 to 18, and, and continuing, uh, continuing on in Chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Ruth chapter 3, verses 14 to 18, and continue on in chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Ruth chapter 3, verse 14 reads, And she lay at his feet until the morning, And she rose up before one could know another. And he said, Let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. Also he said, Bring the veil that thou hast upon thee, and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley, and laid it on her. And she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. Verse 17. And she said, These six measures of barley gave he me. For he said to me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. Then said she, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. For the man, for the man will not be in rest until he have finished the thing this day. Chapter 4. Then went, Boaz went, then went Boaz up to the gate and set him down there. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by. And to whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsmen, Naomi that is come out, Naomi that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech. Verse four. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants, and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me, that I may know. For there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. And this is the word of the Lord. Grab your Bibles this morning. We'll be in the book of Ruth together. I wonder if you've ever had a moment in life where you just needed the attention of someone who was important. I wonder if you've ever found yourself in a place where you just need some help and that one person is the one who can help you, but they've got to pay attention to what you have to say. Maybe they need to pay attention and then they need to act, because when they act, they can help you. But if they don't act and they don't pay attention, you're going to be stuck. Have you ever found yourself in a spot like that? The year was 2012. 
and we were living in Kodidanga at that time. Uh, my girls grew up there. We moved there when they were just three and one. Hannah was a uh, little village girl, grew up there in the village with all the other kids and running around barefoot, eating grasshoppers and all that sort of thing, finding the tree frogs and enjoying those too. And uh, Hannah came down with uh, some kind of a weird rash on her foot, and we didn't think anything of it the first day. And then the second day, uh, she couldn't move that foot. And then the next day, it traveled up to where she couldn't move the leg. And the following day, she woke up, she couldn't move that leg and the opposite arm, which just kind of is a medical mystery, what in the world is going on. A lot of pain, started running a fever, I was flying the aircraft at that time for the mission, and this caused uh, a bit of concern for us when we woke up and found out that she's not getting better, she's just getting worse every day. And so I did what uh, you're not supposed to do as a pilot. I did a medevac for my own family member. Uh, Typically, it's understood that a pilot or a surgeon should never do these type of things for their on their own family members. I should have called in another pilot to come and get us, but I thought by the time they get here, it could be worse. This is my kid. Get in the airplane. Let's go. I had one of the few benefits of being the guy that owns the airplane. I just get in. Let's go. I took her to the hospital. We got, got to Ukurumpa, not Oompa Oompa, but Ukurumpa. Uh, we went to Ukurumpa, and uh, the doctor was there, uh, American doctor, and uh, he had her lay down on the exam table, and uh, he got that little rubber triangle thing, you know what I'm talking about, the little rubber triangle thing, and knocked on her knee and knocked on her ankle, and her foot would move and her leg would move, but when he told her to move her leg, she couldn't move her leg. Told her to move her arm, she couldn't move her arm. This was really strange. He began to ask things like, what kind of grasshopper did you eat? Or what what sort of things are going on that would cause this? Uh, This was a puzzle. He couldn't figure it out. He said, I'll tell you what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to go down to the lab, and we're going to draw some blood. And uh, we'll see if we can't trace this down and figure this out in the blood. And he's just scratching his head. As we're walking out the door, he's asking us more questions. Can't figure this thing out. We went down to the lab, and we're there in the lab. And the, the lady's drawing the blood. And, of course, Hannah, I think, is only about 10 years old at the time. And, of course, the lady drawing the blood, she's trying her best to keep the, 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 the young one happy. You know, little finger puppets and all that sort of thing. And, and okay, we're going to draw blood and take blood from you, little child. Please don't scream when we do this. And, uh, and, and as she was drawing blood, something happened. I'll never forget this. Something happened. The doctor walked into the lab. And when he walked into the lab, he asked more questions. And that told me something. It told me this guy wants to figure out this situation. I heard as we went out in from drawing the blood, we went and sat in the hallway. And while we were sitting in the hallway, I could hear him down the hall in his office on the phone calling some doctors that live somewhere else that specializes in pediatric diseases. And I thought to myself, today, I've got a doctor who's paying attention and listening to my needs. As you can tell, she's grown, no longer has a problem with one leg and one arm not working. I still can't tell you what the issue was, but in that day, I don't know if you've ever done that. You go to the doctor and you say, hey, you know, I've got a runny nose and a sore throat. And he just goes, yeah, the flu's going around. I've got a medicine for you. And he begins to write, you go, no, wait, I haven't begun to tell you about the fact that my heart's not beating anymore. <laughs> right? <laughs> they just cut you off. You know what I mean? It's just that, that moment, bang, you're done. And 
there's something about when you need that important person to listen and act, when they do, you find that you've got the ear. You need that ear, and you've got that ear. Before I go much further into the story, because that's where we pick ourselves up at in Ruth chapter 4, that's what we've got in our Heavenly Father. One who inclines His ear to the prayers of His children. He knows our need. He knows how to meet our need. And like Boaz did to Ruth, not just one scoop of wheat, not just two scoops, but here comes four, five, six scoops. And, and, and Boaz said to Ruth, hey, as the Lord liveth, I will marry you. Those were his words. And that phrase, by the way, in Hebrew, that phrase, as the Lord liveth, that is the greatest, strongest way that he can swear. You might say, I swear on my mother's grave. He says, as the Lord lives, I'm going to marry you. But there's one little thing in the way. You've got a little problem. There is one who is a closer kinsman than I am. I have to straighten that one out. And you'll remember the words that were used in chapter 3 and verse 18 as Ruth comes home and talks to Naomi about it. Notice what she says. Then said she, this is Naomi, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. For the man shall not be in rest until he has finished this thing this day. Here is a guy described in chapter 2 and verse 1 as a mighty man of wealth. He's described as a guy who can do whatever he wants to with whatever he wants to. And he has a small problem. He wants to marry the young lady, but there's somebody else who has the first right of refusal. And he will not stop until he gets to the bottom of this situation today. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 4 and verse 1. The problem has to be resolved. So I've kind of broken the passage up today into three sections. The first one is resolving this dilemma. We'll see it in verses 1 to 8. Let me read chapter 4 and verse 1. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there. And behold, the kinsmen of whom Boaz spake came by unto whom he said, Oh, such a one! Turn aside and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit you down here. And they sat down. I just love the way that Boaz is ambushing this guy. This guy didn't wake up that morning thinking, Today I'm going to get asked about this situation. He woke up and he said, I'm going to head off to the fields. And on his way out at the gate, Boaz was waiting for him. Just ambushed him. Verse 3. And he said unto the kinsmen, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, sells a parcel of land which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is none to redeem it besides thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will Redeem it. The gate of the city, this is the center of gossip. Boaz's there at the, uh, Boaz is there at the gate waiting as people are leaving from the inside of the city to go out, work in the fields, uh, perhaps go to other towns. And Boaz is there. This is the place where uh, the old men would go to sit and talk about what's going on in town. Uh, in modern day, that would be the coffee shop in that time. They moved the coffee shop to the gate of the city. 
And so here's the gate of the city and all of these old guys who used to do stuff, now they're there and they're talking about everything that's going on. We, they call them here in verse 2 the elders of the city. And these guys are there. They've been talking about things like, hey, you remember how Naomi used to live here when she was younger? She went married and they moved off. Her and Elimelech, remember they went to Moab and he died. And they had kids there. We heard about those kids, but we never really got to meet them. Those kids died there as well. And did you notice, Naomi has come back, and boy has she aged. I think they also talked about things like how Ruth has been a virtuous woman. That's Boaz's words. She's been a virtuous woman. Perhaps she's been taking this barley that she's been gleaning, and I don't know, but maybe Naomi's running her own little barley canteen there in Bethlehem. And then Boaz waits in the gate of the city knowing that this fellow is going to walk through and he waits and he catches him. Hey, you, he says, notice that they are related and they're closely related. It's possible with the words that are used at the end of verse three, he says, uh, there's a piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So it's possible, they could be even as close as the three of them are blood brothers. It's possible. Or maybe we might say some of them are blood brothers, some of them would be cousin brothers. But they're definitely closely related. I think that perhaps Boaz, a little bit older, Elimelech, already older and passed away. And then here's this other brother who is, I'm guessing, a little bit older too. He's known here in the passage as the kinsman. And so these guys are related, and Boaz says to him, I want to advertise to you, that's the word in verse 4, I want to let you know first that this piece of land is up for sale. That's Naomi's husband's land. You might remember that throughout the Old Testament, God's command was that the land would remain within the family. A stranger could purchase the land until the year of Jubilee. On the 50th year, every 50 years, they were to do a complete reset. On the 50th year, there's to be no planting, no harvesting, allow the crops to just grow on their own and return to the soil. Don't take anything from the land. And all of the land was to return back to its original ownership. And here, in order for this piece of land to remain within the family and not be purchased by an outsider, there would be this redemption of the land within the family. Boaz presents it to the kinsman, says, Hey, kinsman, would you like to buy this piece of land? And his words in verse 4 were, If you will redeem it, then redeem it. And if you don't, I'm next in line, and I'm definitely going to redeem it. Naomi's land is up for sale. Now, before we go much further in the story, I want to remind you of the portions of redemption. So there were three of them. We talked about these last week, so I won't stay here long. One had to do with the land. We saw that last week in Leviticus chapter 25 and verses 23 and 25. I've just condensed them here. The loss of land that was due to a financial need. Leviticus 25 said that the land shall not be sold forever. If a brother is waxen poor or has sold away some of his possession... And if any of his kin come to redeem it, then he shall redeem that which his brother sold. And so that was Leviticus 25 and verse 23. Then also Levit Leviticus 25 verse 47 would be the loss of freedom 
as a person who is in debt, he can sell himself into slavery. A brother could come along and purchase him out of that slavery. This is Leviticus 25, verse 47. And if thy brother wax poor and sell himself unto a stranger or a sojourner by thee, after that he's sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren can redeem him. And there's a third instance. So that was, we had sold as a slave or sold the land. There's a third need for redemption, and this came in Deuteronomy 25. We saw this last week. It would be the loss of the family name due to death. This is Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. If a brethren dwell together and one of them dies, and he has no child, the wife of the child shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife. Perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her, and it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of her brother of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. So the point here is when the older brother marries and doesn't have a son to pass the inheritance and name to. When that older brother dies, the younger brother is supposed to marry her. When they have a child, the firstborn child takes the inheritance of the first brother. Takes the name of the first brother. We've got a bit of a custom here in PNG that we do this. I'm starting to see this custom change. Perhaps it's maybe because of my time so much in the Gulf province that I saw it more there. I see it less here in the city. Something like this. When a son is born, the son's surname is the dad. You guys follow me? That's very popular. And so we would have, uh, I'll just, I'll use Gus for example, typical within, especially within the setting where I lived for so long in the Gulf, uh, we, Gus has the two boys, Jet and Lawrence, and instead of taking Loia as their surname, they would have Jet Gus. In a situation like this, however, if, let's say, for example, Gus passed away, another brother would then marry his wife, they would have a son together, and then that son would not take his biological dad's name, but instead would take Gus's name. We see that as a bit strange within our custom, but that was the custom that was given to the people of Israel. And the point of it was Deuteronomy 25, verse 6, that the name be not put out of Israel. God wants that name to remain there. There needs to continue to be the name of that person. Uh, I think that there's a hint of this, that he knows you by name and he cares about you. He wants that name to remain there and he continues and he provides for a way that yes, the wife can remarry. And when the wife remarries, she has the first son takes the name of the widowed husband. Second, third, fourth sons take the name of their biological dad. Perfectly fine. But that first son will raise up a name for the dead, that your name be not put out of Israel. This is a big deal. And so here is Boaz in the gate, mighty man of wealth. He's in the gate. He's waiting for his cousin brother to come walking through, the kinsman, waiting for him to walk through the gate. He ambushes him. Hey, 
I got something I need to talk to you about. Now remember, I think, chapter 3 and verse 18, I think Naomi and Ruth are back at the house. I think that because of Naomi's words, sit still, my daughter. So I think Naomi and Ruth are back at the house. But they are very much invested in what's happening at the gate. They want to know the answer. I have no idea. What's this kinsman like? I don't know. Is he a jerk? Is he weird? There's a reason Ruth really likes Boaz. Boaz has done a lot of things to show kindness to Ruth and to Naomi. And she really was, she wanted to marry this guy so bad that she went down to the threshing floor in the night and raised up the blanket from off his feet, scared him half to death. It did say he was afraid. This is worth paying attention to. She really wants Boaz. And she wants Boaz to be the one that redeems the land and redeems her and redeems the name. She wants Boaz, and Boaz is down there, and Boaz wants to redeem. But there's the problem of this kinsman. And legally, they need to straighten out the kinsman issue. So I know that if it was today, and I can't be Ruth in any position at all, but if I was in Ruth's position, I would be back at the house. You know what I'd be asking? Hey, could you have somebody be sending me some updates? What's at me about what's going on at the gate? I want to know every detail. Please, don't wait until it's all over. And I could just imagine there'd be somebody. Of course, it's not Boaz. Boaz isn't, hey, sit down here. I just told him to sit down. No, that's not how it's working. I would imagine if it was me, I'd be asking, hey, maybe there's a friend. Hey, could you go and sit in the gate and then pass me all the information? Now, of course, there's no WhatsApp at the time, but maybe he's writing little notes. Maybe there's a friend writing notes and passing them to a kid. Take this to Naomi. Take this one to Ruth. you got to get this... And I can just imagine, as we come into verse 4, I can just imagine what's going on as Ruth and Naomi are on the edge of their seats. They're not there physically, but they're at the house, and they're just... What happens at the gate is going to totally affect our lives. And there's an excitement, too, for Boaz, as he has just set this guy up to knock him down. This has been the classic ambush. He starts off with, let's talk about land. He didn't start off with, let's talk about a lady. He's, let's talk about the land. And by the way, what business-minded man isn't going to take this opportunity to buy the land? This is a no-brainer, by the way. If you're in the kinsman's this is a no-brainer to purchase that land. Number of reasons. Elimelech's gone. Malon and Chilion are gone. The land stays in the family name. You get to make the income off of that land until the year of Jubilee. And guess what? At the year of Jubilee, it's yours. It returns to who? You. This is a no-brainer by that land. And so this makes complete sense for the kinsman to purchase it. You see his words there at the end of verse 4. And he said, I will. I'll buy it. I'll redeem it. Now verse 5. Boaz is going to respond here. Then, Boaz, what day thou buyest the land of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. We might say this is the fine print. In that contract, there's some fine print that's down at the bottom. By the way, when you buy the land, you don't just get the land. You have to... Because Ruth was married. And there is Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 6, that still exists. And I can just imagine the poor kinsman goes, 
for the wind just got taken out of his sails. What was the best business transaction just turned into the worst business transaction. So verse 6, And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Essentially, if I marry Ruth and I have a child with Ruth, I have to share my own inheritance with Ruth's son, and that's going to mess things up. And I thought to myself, went through, how is it that adding on a field and adding on a son would mess up his inheritance? And I come up with a couple of different scenarios that that might have been. We don't know which one it is. Perhaps, if you'll think this way, perhaps his children are already grown. He's probably a bit older because Boaz and Elimelech, perhaps he's a bit older and maybe his children are already grown and maybe he's already dealt out to them their inheritance. It would make sense. If they're 30, 40 years old by themselves, they probably need to be planting their own crops. And perhaps he's already dealt out the inheritance to them for him to add on children who come along at the backside now that means that he needs to go back and grab some of that inheritance back from those sons to give to younger sons. Maybe that's it. Maybe, perhaps, he's already married. Perhaps he's currently married. And let's just go with common sense. If he shows up with Ruth this afternoon, that's going to cause a lot of problems at the house. Rightly so. Can I take this moment to just pastorally speak to our young ladies and our young men? God's intention for marriage is one man and one woman for life. The words, till death does part us, they're even used in this book of Ruth. The idea is that you get married, one husband, one wife, until you die. That's not a Western mentality. That's God's design. Unless you think, well, David had multiple wives and Solomon had multiple wives, do think what happened in those homes. They were homes wrecked with turmoil because of multiple wives. And this is an important thing for us to remember. Perhaps that might be the reason why he didn't take Ruth, because bringing home a second wife would have been a terrible idea for him. Perhaps that's it. Another reason I see is when you look at verse number 5, Boaz points out the fact, he says, The day that you buy the field of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess. Maybe Boaz knows, and he would know, maybe Boaz knows that he's a racist. Maybe that's it. Maybe he knows that the kinsman would want to have anything to do with a Moabitess woman. And so, for whatever reason, the kinsman says, no, no. I'm not going to do this. I do notice in this passage, however, that the kinsman is never named. That's worth paying attention to. Four times he's called the kinsman in this passage. The kinsman is talked about over a 15-verse span, and four times he's called the kinsman. God doesn't do that in the Bible. God does not refer to someone without using their name unless something's happening here. And I think something big is happening here. You see, we get people named in the passage. Chilion is named twice. Malon is mentioned three times. 
Uh, you've got Salmon is mentioned twice. Obed is mentioned twice. Uh, I look through this and I go, there's people who weren't even a part of this that were named. You can go through all through the scriptures. There's people, uh, Becky and I are reading in our devotions right now, we're reading through the book of First Chronicles. There's people in the book of First Chronicles that their name's in there once and we don't even know why. They're in a lineage and so that guy's name is put in the book. This guy, four opportunities to give him a name and we don't get it. In fact, in 15 verses, he's referred to in the third person 12 times. So people are going, that guy, him, he. And God goes, as we're writing along in a book, the Holy Spirit inspires the author to just go, no, just call him the kinsman. We're going to forget his name. And by the way, in verse number 6, the kinsman refers to himself I, me, mine. He does it six times. In one verse, he talks about himself six times. God gives him four times that he could have had a name. And no. And what is it? What is it that the kinsman has a problem with? Look at verse six closely. What's his problem? I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I what? Lest I mar mine own inheritance. The reason that he cannot redeem the land and redeem Ruth is because he's afraid that it's going to mess up his own inheritance. You know what an inheritance is? An inheritance is a legacy about your name. And God goes, you want to protect your name and you don't want to care about your own brother? Okay, in that case, I'll erase your name for good. And at the end of verse 6, you never hear about him again. The kinsman is never mentioned again. The end of verse 6, I'm out. And God goes, yeah, I'm out too. You see, there's something big going on here. You look after your brother. You take care of others. And when you try to make it about you, there's no space for that in, the Christian, in a Christian's life. You should be caring about others, taking care of others. And God's kingdom, the way up is down. Humility is the way up. And this guy, I think he's got it all mixed up. So now verse number 7. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. Why take off the shoe? This is a visible representation of a willing deem. As this guy goes home that day, he's going home, not barefoot, not with shoes on, one side. He's going to go home one side. And people who live in Bethlehem and who know the story and who know what happens with one-footed people watches this guy as he walks home with one foot. And his name will be called, He Who Has One Shoe. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 25. We've been seeing Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 and 6 that have to do with the redemption of a name. Here's verse 7. Deuteronomy 25 verse 7. And if a man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Verse 8. Then the elders of his city shall call him, speak unto him, and if he stands to it and say, I will not take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence 
presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto the man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. How embarrassing. Refuse to take care of your brother's name? Be done with you. This is a big deal in Israel. The shoe's off. Permission is granted to Boaz. If it was today, the WhatsApp just got sent across. Boaz gets the rights. Or maybe it was a little note. Or if nothing else, a little kid took off running with a good, good message. That brings us into verses 9 and 10. And I see this here in verses 9 and 10 as a redeeming of the inheritance. Look at verse 9. Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, You are witnesses this day. I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased. That's the same word here that's used in the book of Nehemiah as redeemed. I've purchased her to be my wife. I've taken up all the rights to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. You are witnesses this day. There's a public witness. Again, pastoral moment, young ladies, you want a guy that will stand up publicly and say, I will take care of this lady. I will take care of her family. I will pay attention to her needs. And until death do us part, I'm with this one. That's what you need. Boaz did it. Right there in the gate in front of all the elders. I'm going to marry Ruth. And I'll raise up a name to the one that she was married to before. I'll take care of her family. What a beautiful picture. And I'll say it again, young ladies, the same way I've said it many times. When it comes time for looking around for that right, Mr. Right, I want you to ask this question. Does he love the Lord Jesus more than he loves you? Because if he does... He'll take good care of you. So here Boaz purchases the inheritance. Now, I want you to pay attention closely to the words in verse 9. Verse 9, he makes this statement. And and this is what really grabbed me in study this week. Verse 9. Boaz said to the elders, all the people, your witnesses this day, that I have bought... All that was Elimelech's. Now, you know what that means, right? If he says, I bought it, it means... He paid. He's going to pay. I bought all that is Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. You know what that means? He just bought all of Elimelech's land, maybe the family house, everything that belongs to Elimelech, he bought it. He redeemed it. That's the word that's used all throughout the passage. He bought it, but who did he pay for it? Naomi. That's significant. What's he going to do with that land? What's he going to do with the land? He's going to marry Ruth. They're going to have a child together. The very first child, by the way, his name is Obed. That very first child is going to take the name of Malon and he's going to inherit everything that was Malon's and Elimelech's. I hope this is causing your mind to go, hang on a second. Boaz paid for paid his mother-in-law for the land that he would give to his son. 
That's mind-boggling. I wouldn't do that. If I'm raising, look, if I'm marrying a lady so that I can raise up a child to the name of her dead husband, that, sorry, that dead husband, that's not my problem. And my mother-in-law. You get to come live at the house, moms. Just come live at the house. We'll take care of you. My wife will feed you, all of that stuff. We'll make sure your needs are met. But buy all of your stuff so that I can give it to your grandson? Nah. That's not happening. Not me. And I'm a pastor. You know what Boaz is doing? He's redeeming to the nth degree. A mighty man of wealth. You think it matters to him to spend some money? He's given over money to Naomi. Naomi, I'm going to redeem this land. I'm going to take care of you in this. You want to come live with us? So be it. You want to live on your own? You want to go get a rental house? You want to go buy a rental house and rent it out? I don't care. You're getting the value of Elimelech's land, and then I'm going to pass it on to the son that I will raise in your dead son's name. Now, here's an amazing thing, by the way. When the lineage is told, I'll just go ahead and jump to this. When the lineage is told, the lineage is not told in the line of Mylon. The lineage is told in the line of Boaz, which tells me something. When you refuse to bring a name to someone else, God hates it, will erase your name. But when you give a name to somebody else, you know what God does? He goes, hey, how about that one? Pay attention to what Boaz did. And Boaz gets his name recorded again and again and again, all the way into the New Testament, multiple times in the New Testament. You see, God makes that name famous. Such an unselfish act as he's building up someone else's name. And I think of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer. What did Boaz have to gain? Sure, he got a wife. But what did he have to gain in spending out all that money to Naomi and giving all that land over to the son that doesn't carry his name? What does he have to gain in that? And I think of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer, What did he have to gain as he stepped away from the throne in heaven, as he stepped aside and put aside all of the riches of the glories, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, stepped aside from all of the riches of glory in heaven, and he descended to become a man, and then he went even further than that, tasted death for you and I. Why? So that you and I could gain gain eternal life. This is a beautiful picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet, I think Boaz knew. I married, I gain a lot. I raised sons, I gain a lot. And just like that, the Lord Jesus knew who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he went knowing that when he shares the inheritance with us, there is no loss for him. For when you share infinity, you don't miss out on anything. I come into the third portion here is receiving a blessing, verses 11 down to verse 13. Verse 11. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is to come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. Before I go to verse 12 and 13, 
this is not in my notes. I just want to point out verse 11. Boaz is bringing in a Moabitish woman to marry her, and they will have descendants that will go all the way through to Jesus. And Micah chapter 5 will call out the names that are listed in this place. Though thou art smallest among all the towns, Bethlehem, Judah, out of you will come the one who will be the king. Verse 12. They continue their blessing. These are the people in the gate. Let thy house be like the house of Pharaoh's, whom Tamar bare unto Judah of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. I see this blessing. I see twofold, twofold blessing. There's a blessing from the people, and there's a blessing from the Lord. The blessing from the people in verses 11 and 12, the first blessing, that they give three of them there. The first one is, may you be blessed like Rachel. And if you remember the story, Joseph, uh, sorry, Jacob took two wives, was Rachel and Leah. He wanted Rachel. He wanted to marry Rachel. She was the beautiful one. He worked for seven years. There was a trickery from the father-in-law, and he ended up working another seven years. So he worked 14 years to get this young lady as his wife. He loved her. And so I see the blessing that's given here. May she be to you like Rachel, one of our mothers in our nation. May she be like Rachel. May she be beloved within your home. And by the way, it's worth noting that when Rachel died, she died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. You remember the two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, both of them well-beloved because they were the children of Rachel. When Rachel died, she died in childbirth to Benjamin. And the family was traveling when that happened. Leah ends up being buried with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But not Rachel. Rachel was buried where she died. She died in childbirth for Benjamin. And the place where they were when they traveled was Bethlehem. So here is the people that live in Bethlehem going... May your wife be a blessing to you much like Rachel was a blessing to Jacob. And while they say that, they know that Rachel is buried right here in their own cemetery. And they also make the statement, may she be a blessing to you like Leah. May she be a blessing to you like Leah. Leah was the one who was tender-eyed. It's the words that are used in the book of Genesis. She was tender-eyed. And I think that was a nice way of saying it hurt to look at her. She's not so pretty as Rachel. <laughs> She's the one that the father-in-law tricked into being able to and somehow Jacob accidentally married her. That's kind of a funny way to think about it. I've never thought about accidentally marrying somebody. And somehow Jacob accidentally married Leah, found out about it the next day, and he went, oh, snap, you're not the one I was trying to get married to. He gets stuck with Leah. She was very, very fruitful. She has children left, right, and center. And I think that that's the phrase that they are going for here. May, may the wife you're marrying, when you marry Ruth, may she be like Rachel, may she be beloved. And may she be like Leah, may she be very fruitful. And for the people of Judah, this is important because Leah is the mama for Judah. She's the grandmother for us. May she be like Leah. And then they make another statement that's in the verse number 14. 
And this one, I'm oh, sorry, verse number 12, and this one kind of caught me off guard. Let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord has given thee. May your house be like the house of Perez. I'll share the highlights of the story of Perez. It comes from Genesis chapter 38. And if you want to read that later, you can. At the time of the story, Genesis 38 just drops in in the middle of Joseph's story in the book of Genesis. It just seems like a really weird story in the middle of Joseph's story. You remember Joseph, coat of many colors, thrown in the pit, taken off into slavery, lives in Egypt, becomes Pharaoh's second man. You remember that story. Right in the middle of that story, Genesis 38 happens, and it kind of seems disjointed And it starts off the story with Judah. Judah, one of the twelve sons of Israel. You remember Judah. And really at this point in his life, he's done nothing significant in the book of Genesis except for he's the guy that threw Joseph in the pit. That's the only thing that he's done significant. uh, Judah has three sons. The first son gets married to Tamar. And he's wicked. In fact, he's so wicked... God killed him. So then as the story of redemption goes, the second son was supposed to marry Tamar and raise a son to the first son's name. The second son goes to get married, takes advantage of her, refuses to raise a child to that name, and God kills the second son too. So now son number one and son number two are both dead. And it's time for the third son to get married to Tamar so they can raise up a child to the first son's name. So that the name will not be eliminated from from Israel. Judah, however, holds this third son back because Judah errantly thinks Tamar's the reason that these boys are dying. So he goes, no, I'm not going to give the third son because no good, he might die too. And Tamar realizes it. I don't condone this, and I don't think Scripture condones it either. But Tamar realizes that she's being wronged. She dressed up like a prostitute, and she tricked Judah, and she ends up having a child with Judah. When Judah finds out that she's pregnant, he doesn't realize that he's the father. When, when he finds out that she's pregnant, his first response is, she's been sleeping around, she needs to be put to death. She has evidence that he's the dad. And she goes, I die, so do you. Judah goes, oh no, this is really bad. I'm telling you, Genesis 38, weird story. Go read it on your own time. Some really wacky stuff happened there. She ends up being pregnant with twins. And when the twins go to be born, the first one is breech delivery. The hand is born first. The midwife ties a ribbon on the hand, and the baby cannot be born that way. The baby has to go back. The baby's hand gets put back in, and then the other twin is born first. They name him Pharez, which means to break forth. When the first baby started coming out, you expect that's going to be the one that's the firstborn. But no, somehow he becomes the secondborn. The other one becomes firstborn. That's Pharez. Pharez ends up growing, notice, not raising the name to his older brother, raising the name to his dad, Judah. He's technically the fourth son of Judah. 
It is through Perez that God decides to send the lineage. Can I say this? Perez and his brother, Zerah, the two of them are born into all kinds of shame. What a shameful way to start life. But God ends up giving a name to Perez. Before it's over with, Perez is not defined by what happened earlier in his life. Perez is completely defined by what God does in his life. You realize that that's the way it is for us? You're not defined by the sin that was going on in your life. You're defined by what God does in your life. And so here's Perez. So by the time we come to the story of Ruth, Perez is no longer known as a Genesis 38 tragedy, but instead Perez is known as the one who has a home who God blessed. And the people say to Boaz, may your home be like the home of Perez. And for those of us that are more familiar with Genesis 38, you go, I don't understand that. But for the people that lived in Bethlehem, Judah that day, that was a blessing. Not only did the people bless Boaz, but God blessed him as well. And you see that in verse number 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. When she went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. Do you see the blessing from the Lord there? Conception is from the Lord. I want you to hear me well this morning. The Lord is the one who opens the womb, and the Lord is the one who closes the womb. For ten years, Ruth had been married to Milon, and her womb had been closed. You see, the Lord is the one who closes the womb, the Lord is the one who opens the womb, and He does that in His goodness. He does that in His providence. He does that in His faithfulness. He opens the womb. He closes the womb. Because we see so many children born, we just tend to think babies are born. And yet, I want to remind you this morning that an unwanted pregnancy is a gift from the Lord. And a season of inability to have a child is a gift from the Lord. And you may not understand, even in this lifetime, why the Lord chooses to open and sometimes chooses to close. But the Scripture is replete with times where it says, children are a heritage from the Lord. A gift from God. And to help you understand this, I want you to think for just a moment if Ruth had had a child with Malon, ten years, ten years they were married, and ten years of them knowing if there's no child, Ruth's going to end up a gleaner. Naomi's going to end up a gleaner. There's not going to be anybody to take care of the family, and definitely nobody to pass the family name on to, and the inheritance will be gone. But do you realize that if Ruth and Malon had had a child... The entire book of Ruth would have never been in the Bible. For there would have been no need for a Redeemer. The Lord is the one who opens the womb. And so God, in His providence, blessed Boaz and Ruth. I can speak some hope and tr 
truth into our lives this morning, you can trust His goodness. Whether it be in this matter of opening the womb, or it be another matter, you can trust His goodness. You can trust His timing. You can trust Him, for He is at work for your good. We won't finish out verse 14 to the end of the chapter because we covered it in our first sermon. Verse 14 to the end of the chapter is really Naomi's story. And we saw that in the opening sermon of the book of Ruth. But I'd like to close with a thought. I'd like to circle back around to the cross. I think of the anticipation that Ruth and Naomi must have had as they were waiting to hear what's happening at the gate. I wonder what that was like. I wonder what Ruth is sitting there thinking, I really want it to be Boaz. I don't want that other guy. Maybe she knows him. Maybe she's seen him. Mania face no good. I don't know. She definitely doesn't want that guy. She wants Boaz. And she needs for Boaz to be able to do it. Come on, man. Pull through. I think back to our own. The moment... When you, I don't know if it was this way for you. I know it was for me. Maybe you didn't fully understand as you were coming to a point of salvation. But I wonder as you were hearing the good news, I wonder as you began to take in the bad news, the fact that you are separated from God in your sin, unable to come to Him unless He calls you to Himself. You realize that? Allow the bad news to soak in. And in that bad news, you find yourself in desperate need of a Savior. I need Him to be the one who will work on my behalf. And then maybe the questions would float through your mind, but would He? Would He actually do this on my behalf? I don't know how many of you had this kind of question go through your mind. It went through mine. How is it possible that I don't have to do anything? Because certainly He would want me to do something. And then I begin to think, oh, He has done everything. Not only would He, but He did. He went to the cross on my behalf. He's already paid for my sin. And now He calls on me to just but trust in Him. Oh, this is a glorious moment as I realize that yes, He's done this on my behalf. Or I think of those of us who are believers today. You've put your trust in the Lord Jesus and you've Live, you're living this life and you run into suffering and turmoil. You think to yourself, I need a mighty man of power to work on my behalf. I need him who knows all things to work on my behalf. I need him to hear me. I need him to do something on my behalf. And all I want to remind you this morning, the words of Romans chapter 8 and verse 22. Why is it that I continue to go through sufferings in this life? Here's Romans 8 and verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. The land is groaning, waiting. And what's it waiting for? Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. You're a believer. The Holy Spirit's indwelling you already, and we're still waiting, and we ourselves are groaning within ourselves, waiting for the adoption that is, to wit, that is the redemption of our body. So while we go through these sufferings in this life, there's a mighty man of power who's working on our behalf. 
And the day will come when He will redeem us. Do you hear the words? The redemption of our bodies. He will redeem us. He will bring us to be with Him forever. Our bodies will be glorified. The earth groans in travail now, and we groan in travail with sickness and pain as we face death. We go through groaning and travail now, waiting for that mighty man to work on our behalf. And when He redeems us, oh, it will be glorious. And maybe I'll just toss one more verse. This is Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. We've walked through this passage before. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. I reckon that these current sufferings are not worthy to be compared. There's coming a day when He will redeem your body. And in that day, all things will be made new. I know that my Redeemer lives and He's taken an interest in my life and that mighty man is working for my good. Father, I thank You for Your grace. Thank You for being the mighty man of wealth on our behalf, our Redeemer. The one who works on our behalf and does all things good on our behalf Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged this morning by Your goodness. Lord, thank You for Your people. May You be glorified through the preaching of Your Word. And may we go out this morning encouraged, knowing one day God's going to redeem my... Lord, bless You and keep You. Make His face to shine upon You. God bless You. Have a good...